Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again in Palmerston North, New Zealand by the Reverend Ian Reid, otherwise known as Rido, of King's Grace Presbyterian Church. Ian, hi, welcome back. Hi, how are we, Brent? Oh, we're good, thank you. Now, we continue today, Ian, with Mark chapter 2, verse 13, to chapter 3, verse 19. Now, what did we see Jesus doing last time? So we saw kind of Jesus' first day of ministry, or kind of, you know, just after his first day of ministry, he goes out to a remote place, he goes and prays, it looks like, and then uh, he says to his disciples, we need to go elsewhere because that's why I've come out to preach. Uh, so what does he do? He goes all throughout Galilee, he's preaching, he's uh, healing people, he is uh, driving out demons. Uh, he, we, we saw him encounter with a leper and then we saw his encounter with a paralytic man and both of them he heals. Both of them probably outsiders and then what do we see? Jesus uh, restores them. Mm. And this business of, of Jesus coming to deal with outsiders is fascinating. And in what sense do we see Jesus dealing with outsiders in our passage today? and indeed becoming something of an outsider himself. Well, the people that he calls around himself to be his disciples are a strange mix of people. It's kind of putting it lightly. Uh, <laughs> the folk that nobody else wants, basically. <laughs> There's definitely some, somewhat of that. And he is able to gather this eclectic group, basically all of them outsiders in their own way. Uh, and at the same time, though, it makes him very uh, kind of open to criticism from the religious experts around. Yes, and uh, there's one thing I love about the Lord Jesus Christ and these Gospels, and we're just sitting talking and we're both saying to each other, we don't feel worthy to discuss this because such a great Gospel, such a great word, and, and who are we? <laughs> we're miserable sinners, really. But one of the things I love, absolutely adore about the Lord Jesus is his ability to seek out the lost, the lonely, and those who are not wanted by people, and to absolutely comfort them and relate to them and deal with their issues. I think one of the big things for me is that he restores humanity to people. And so as the true human himself, mm -hmm. he actually uh, kind of makes other people into be real humans as well. And I think we can experience that ourselves, that you know, when we're ostracised or when we're lonely, you do feel dehumanised in some way or when you're cast out uh, or, or unfriended. Um, that's how he often feels, is that I'm not a true human. But Jesus is able to do this thing where he not only restores humanity, but he restores us to a new place that's even beyond what we could ex we could expect, that he makes us into true human beings. And how does he do that? He kind of he starts to undo our sin. Mm. Yeah, so if you're sitting listening to this podcast, wherever you may be in the world, and you feel uh, as though you have no friends, that you are an outsider, uh, listen on because you're going to meet a person who knows exactly what that feels like and has been there and has done it, supremely so. Now, how does Jesus encounter opposition in chapter 2 and the early part of chapter 3 of Mark as we start to see the sharks circling? Yeah, and you've got this, uh, these kind of different groups. Mainly we see the, the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together against Jesus. And what are they... Early on in Mark, we see that there's a plot to kill Jesus because that's how vicious the kind of hatred is. It, go, it runs deep. Uh, but on all of these, um, kind of th running through this, is there this idea of opposition is coming against Jesus. He's come and entered the world. Uh, and you think, great, he comes, you know, the king, he comes the one to, to free us of sin. But the opposition comes from his own people. Mm. Yes, it's, it's quite 
frightening, really, and, and very sad, but also very true. Uh, okay, so verse 13, he went out again, this is Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. So we've now got a tax collector. We've had a leper, a paralytic, and now a tax collector. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Okay, well, we meet our first outsider in the passage today, Ian Levi. Now, who was Levi? Levi is probably uh, Matthew and potentially... Oh, okay, the Matthew of the Gospels. Possibly, yeah. yes, uh, and that kind of oh. his, his name might be changed. Uh, and so it's possible that, that yeah, Matthew, who wrote the Gospels, was, was, is the same Levi here. We don't know for certain, but there's kind of uh, early church history accounts of that. Mm. Why were, no need to ask this question really, but why were tax collectors so hated in Jesus' day? No disrespect to tax collectors. Well, you know that I, I that was my job. Was, yeah, you well, were not, a tax not, collector. Not, not, not a tax religion. collector, but you know, kind of my uh, other area rather than studying divinity, I also studied, uh, or theology, I also studied tax. So <laughs> you can blame me, maybe I'm an outcast too. But they were, they were seen as the collaborators, so they were working on behalf of the Roman Empire. Ah, yes. And so this is the, the important thing, is that they're, they're hated so much because at the time Israel is occupied by Rome and you have these kind of these Jewish people collecting tax on behalf of the Roman Empire, but they, uh, it, was a, it was a money-making scheme, was that you would collect uh, the amount that you needed, but then you could also collect more for yourself as to, to earn a living. Yeah, so they got kickbacks, in other words, did they, these tax collectors? Yeah, yeah, and they could kind of do what they liked, basically, you know, around this. It was kind of a, you know, an easy way to make a lot of money. And so people would do it for that reason. Yeah. Okay, is there any significance to the fact that we're told that Jesus is walking beside the sea? Well, it's the Sea of Galilee that's probably being referred to here. So most of Jesus' ministry happens in northern Israel, uh, away from the kind of the main centre, Jerusalem, away from where the, most of the religious kind of worship happens, which is which is down there. And it's away from the seat of government, which was, for the Jewish people, was Jerusalem, uh, for... Uh, the, for Rome in Palestine or kind of that, that kind of Israel area, it was actually Caesarea, which is out towards the sea. But this is up in Galilee uh, by the sea, and it's probably close to where Jesus lives, that Jesus is known in this area. Is there any theological significance to the fact that so much of Jesus' ministry in, in this part of Mark takes place beside the sea, given the loaded history of Israel to do with seas and the Red Sea and the Passover and the crossing. Well, you've and got all of those things, don't you? And, you know, in general, the sea is not seen as a positive kind of image in uh, Israelite kind of culture, that that the sea is um, a place where of danger. You know, they, they, where more, all the sea monsters were. Yeah, yeah, but they're, they're, kind of, they're not a seagoing kind of group. Uh, and the sea here is actually a huge lake, basically. It, it does have access to the Mediterranean, but it's a huge lake kind of in the middle of, of the land. Why does Jesus go and have dinner with Levi? And what was the significance of eating or sharing a meal in the ancient world anyway? 
Well, it was a, it was a sign of deep friendship, and so you would go and do that only with people who you know kind of you wanted to be associated with, uh, and so that hospi- but that hospitality ran quite deep, and so. Jesus going to his house, he's saying, this is my friend. This is someone I'm associated with. And to do that with a tax collector, no one would ever do that. That's just you know, kind of bizarre. Yeah, who are the sinners mentioned here? Don't know. <laughs> you know you kind of, well, it's got tax collectors. Uh, tax collectors and, and sinners, sinners. You yes. Kind of, you know, it's not just the, tax, the sinners who are the tax collectors. You've got both. Well, it's, quite, it's clearly all of the outcasts in society, particularly mm. if this is a Jewish region. You know, it's the people who do not fit in. Uh, with the other kind of people around. Were all these people considered unclean under the law? I'm not, not 100% sure about tax collectors, uh, but they definitely, I'd say that they would be, just they'd be cast out from, you know, kind of from society. That, that when you did this, when you took on the job as a tax collector, your whole family basically uh, was, was snobbed. You know, you kind of, is that, I don't know if that's a, a common term around the world, but... You know, yeah, we know what you mean, yeah. You know, you, you got ostracised from, from everyone. Because you're working for Rome, effectively. You've gone over to the other side. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a bit like uh, those who, I suppose, inadvertently worked for the Nazis and uh, the f- occupation of France or Holland or something like that during yeah. World War II. Yeah. yeah. What's the Pharisees' reaction there in verse 16? Well, they're shocked, aren't they? Why does... Uh, he eat with tax collectors and sinners. You know, how can someone who claims to be holy, who claims to be someone upholds God's law, go and eat with the unclean, unholy people? How can, how can that possibly be? Because one big part of that is when you eat with someone uh, and you are partaking kind of food with them, clearly they would have touched the food. Uh, so it makes you unclean if you, if you partake in it. Yeah. Who were the Pharisees anyway, uh, Rito? So there, it's kind of like a, almost like a denomination, you might say, of kind of within within Judaism, uh, and so we we call it a sect. Uh, and it's possible that that Jesus was a part of the Pharisaic sect, and so it's just one of the one of the the, the sects around. Uh, Pharise- the Pharisees were, were one big group. The Sadducees were another big group, uh, but quite the, the, they wanted to obey the Old Testament law, but they also had other laws on top of that. Yes, so these are uh, the, the religious people, really, uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the church folk, if I can put it like that. How, well, I've probably offended people now. No, well, you know what I mean. Well, if you can pick a denomination, uh, we, we, <laughs> no, we, we could you no, know, cut out who, who, uh, no, 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 who no, you no. want to offend. No I, don't, no, I don't want to offend anybody. How, how does Jesus reply to these folk there then in verse 17? It's interesting what he says, isn't it? That those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, Physician, that's a hard word, isn't it? Doctor. But those who are sick, I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, uh, but the sinners. It's an interesting thing that Jesus says. He, in a sense, it kind of sounds like he's saying, I'm not interested in you Pharisees. Um, it, and they're kind of almost saying, you're all right with God, uh, but I'm, only get, I'm going to go to the people who aren't right with God. It doesn't mean that. Uh, I think what he's saying is, I've come to those people who know that they are sick. They know that they are sinful. They know that they're far from God because they are the people that know they need to be healed. Yes. So how does Jesus then pronounce a judgment on those who think they're insiders? Because presumably the Pharisees are insiders and these folk are outsiders. Yeah, I think he's kind of saying, look, you guys are arrogant. You think that you and prideful. You think that you are close to God, but actually you're far away. And so that's why I've not come to you. 
Yeah, it's pretty, it's extraordinary stuff, isn't it? In what way do the social outcasts and outsiders become the insiders then here? So you have Jesus kind of, where, you know, if, if Jesus is God himself, who is he eating with? He's eating with the people who you would think are on the outside and the people who uh, are, you know, kind of, who think that they're on the inside, the Pharisees here. Uh, and what, what, where are they? They're, they think they're on the inside, but they're actually not eating there. They're on the outside. Yeah, so he's kind of reversing social norms, isn't he? And, yeah, sa- and yeah. saying to these folk who are used to wielding the power in the society, uh, you guys are actually on the outside, and these people that you're looking down your nose at are, are my people. They're, they're on the inside, yeah. yeah. Powerful stuff, yes. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 28, we carry on. Um, now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're really grumpy, these people, aren't they? (laughs) What are you doing this for? (laughs) And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, I'm not quite sure how that's pronounced, Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, what happens in these two scenes then, Rito? You do have some grumpiness going on here, don't oh, you? Lots of ecclesiastical grumpiness. <laughs> But well, the first Peter grumpiness includes John's disciples, right? But I don't whether they come to Jesus or not is not a hundred percent clear. Uh, but you've got someone coming to Jesus being really grumpy about them not fasting, so not uh, kind of doing the religious practice of you know stopping stopping eating food for a period so that you can you can pray or do whatever. And then the second bit, you've got uh, this um, yeah more grumpiness with people coming asking Jesus about why aren't you. Uh, kind of being lawful about the Sabbath. But notice that both of them, I think, is interesting, are things that we do, right? The fasting is something that we do. Uh, and the two, like, in their interpretation of the Sabbath is something that we do. And so but both of them about something that you do by stopping by doing, you kind of at the same time. By fasting, what are you doing? You're stopping eating. By uh, obeying the Sabbath, you're stopping by stopping working. Yeah. I love all this bridegroom and wedding. This is the start of all the bridegroom and wedding imagery in Mark, and it's in the other Gospels as well. But what's the significance of the bridegroom and wedding imagery there in verses 19 to 20? What is Jesus saying? Well, what he is saying, he's saying that I am the bridegroom, uh, and you know that there's obvious reference there to... Uh, kind of other parts of, of the Bible where God is, is referenced as that, that, you know, kind of in, in even Exodus, the Mount Sinai is kind of seen as a wedding ceremony with God being the bridegroom. Ah, yes. And you, you have, um, you know, kind of the Israel 
is is the bride kind of being married. You've obviously got that you know towards the end of the Bible as well. But do, do, yes, sorry. with the uh, in Revelation with the great scene of the New Jerusalem coming down like a bride. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So Jesus, yeah, he, he's not kind of directly referencing that, but there's kind of hints of that kind of there, I think. But look at what it says: Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus is saying. I am the bridegroom, come, and this is the time of celebration because I am here with my people. Mm. What point is Jesus making in verses 21 and 22 with these rather wonderful images of the old garment and the old wineskin? Yeah, it's kind of something that's probably lost on us a little bit now. When was the last time that you, uh, you know, got a piece of uh, cloth and put it on you know, a pair of jeans that ripped or something like that. It's probably been a while since, that, since that's happened. So and definitely a while since I've handled a wineskin, brother. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't like wines, so I've never handled a wineskin, I'd have to say. Uh, but what you have here, you, you kind of get the gist of what's going on, that if you know the people who are already there, the establishment, if I pour this into you know, my teaching and my kingdom into them... They can't handle it. It's just going to burst because not only are they not ready for it, but their heart, their hearts are hardened to it. I think this is this is the more you know. When I, as a kid, I heard this kind of story. It's like, oh, that's a bit unfair for the establishment. You know, give them a chance or something like that. But that's not the case. It's that their hearts are hardened uh, to this new message. It's not really a new message. It's just a message being revealed that's there the whole time throughout the whole Bible. What's the significance of the Lord Jesus' claim in chapter 2, verses 27, I'm Lord of the Sabbath? Well, it's a huge claim. It's, you know, kind of really what he's claiming is that he is God himself, which he is. Uh, But he is claiming that because only God is the God of the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath uh, kind of pops up the whole way through the Old Testament. You have it right in the Garden of Eden. Uh, It's such an important thing in the law, keeping the Sabbath holy. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, it's just it's all throughout the Old Testament, and then you have Jesus Himself saying, "I am the Lord of the Sabbath." You know, that's there's no bigger claim than that. No, in other words, I'm the Lord God. Yes. Yeah. And what is Jesus saying about the Sabbath here? Well, the big thing is at the end there: the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That Sabbath. Yeah, you know, I, I actually think that that the whole Bible is actually kind of about the Sabbath. Mm. That it is about rest, mm. uh, but relationship as well in the Sabbath. That you know, rest and peaceful relationship with each other, but more importantly, with our, with God the Father. And so, what he's saying is that this is what we are made for. We are made for rest. We are made for Sabbath. We are made for shalom. Is kind of the word um, in terms of peace that, that we have uh, as well. But you know that God d- doesn't expect you to work hard uh, on your Sabbath. To keep his rules, it's actually the opposite. I've made this so that you can rest and relax. In what sense is Jesus fulfilling the law about the Sabbath there? Well, when the other people come to him and say, hey, you need to uh, do all of these, you know, why, why are your men doing these things? To them, it's all about the rule keeping. It's not actually about resting. It's actually about working. You know, and it's kind of, they've kind of been able to flip rest into a form of work. So we're going to work really hard at resting, you know, kind of. You told the story in your sermon about someone who went, uh, 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 was it in the many, many, many years ago, who went out walking on the Sabbath in Scotland? Well, Tell me, that's a fabulous story. Tell us well, that. Well, I think it was a joke. <laughs> but, um, yeah, a man visiting Edinburgh, kind of, you know, kind of in the height of uh, Scottish Presbyterianism, goes for a walk. 
uh, out and around you know, on, a, on, a, on a Sunday morning and someone yells out his window, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> and he says, I'm just going for a walk, you know, beautiful Edinburgh. He said, you better not do that, it's a Sabbath. And he said, but even Jesus, you know, walked around and did things on, on the Sabbath and the man, the Scottish man replied to him, yeah, but he wouldn't have got away with that around here. <laughs> In what sense, though, is Jesus our rest and our Sabbath? Yeah, this is this is the big thing, isn't it? Isn't it that Jesus is kind of, in a sense, saying, "I am the Sabbath." You know, being the Lord of the Sabbath makes Him the Sabbath. That when we come to Him, that's when we find true rest. Uh, and I think that's what the whole Bible is really heading towards. That point that when we have a relationship with Jesus, we have this yes, there's this deeper peace, but there's even bigger and beyond that in terms of this is where we find our true rest. By the way, are you a strict Sabbatarian? I'm not a strict Sabbatarian. I know a few, but uh, I'm not. I, I, I kind of, uh, I would say a light Sabbatarian. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that in New Zealand, when uh, they were introducing Sunday trading, it was the, it was the churches, but the trade unions also were together in, in being against Sunday trading, trading because they saw of what this would do to their workers mm-hmm. and and particularly families as well. That me- it means you've got to work all the time. Yes, I, th- I think there's an important principle, and Lord God knew exactly what he was doing by uh, giving us a day of, of rest. I'm not a strict Sabbatarian either, but I have dear friends who are. Yeah, I don't think it would yeah. work quite well in us. I think you could get around it, but you know, we need to keep the lights on. <laughs> you know, kind yeah. of. Yes, well, the, the problem will come, and, and people will be asking us, OK, I have to work on uh, the Sabbath on a Sunday, and I have no choice. How do I reconcile that with my faith and practice? Yeah, I think, you know, in a certain, for me, I kind of, because I work on a Sunday, being a pastor, uh, it, it is finding rest and that if you do not find that rest, you will collapse and you just can't go on. And so it is finding rest. So take another day off. Take, take, take one day off and seven, no matter what day it is, and yeah, keep the yeah. principle of the thing. Yeah. Okay, verses 3, 1 to 6. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So now he's being watched. He would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they're looking to catch him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Very loaded question. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Okay, so how does the opposition which Jesus encounters in these verses bring to a head all the opposition we've seen in chapter 2? Well, it's been slowly building this opposition. And firstly, it was just kind of questions about what Jesus is about and you know, kind of why he was doing some certain things. But now they're in a synagogue, place of kind of worship, uh, and it's an opportunity to test Jesus about what he's going to do. I think it is the weirdest story in, in, mm. some, in some ways, the response. He's a dude that can heal people, and you're angry about him healing people. <laughs> like, yeah. Of course. Don't you think that's odd? <laughs> oh, I think these guys are motivated by, oh, who knows, jealousy. Why can't we do this? We're supposed to be in charge here. Who is this bloke anyway? You yeah, know? it's definitely a threat to their authority, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Who does he think he is, this chap from wherever he's come from? Yeah. We haven't ordained him. No, no, we definitely haven't. <laughs> so what does Jesus do here? So, well, he heal- well, first he questions them. 
uh, and in terms of he, he knows what he, Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. I would not like to have been on the end of one of the Lord Jesus questions. No, no, it's, they're very pointed because he, <laughs> he knows exactly what's going on deep down, and he's he has an amazing way of uh, you know either asking some of those deeper questions around that, or um, you know kind of doing something that that reveals people's true nature underneath. And so that's what he does. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? And and then he goes and heals the man, you know, and he kind of knowing exactly what's going to happen. Mm. And the answer to the, the question is, uh, we're going to kill on the Sabbath. The yeah. religious leaders are going to kill on the Sabbath because they want to kill. They want to prevent the man from being healed, which is killing his chance of life effectively. And now they're going to kill the source of life. Yeah, yeah. So these religious people are prepared to kill on the Sabbath. Yeah. It's a completely valid, loaded but valid question. Um, who are the Herodians, Ian? So they so the. Um I mean, that's a really complicated history around, around the Herods, uh, but it's the people that that basically uh, kind of follow Herod and kind of his servants, and more than that, you know, kind of you know, part of his kingdom. And I, I don't, you know, kind of okay. know all of the detail around that, but yeah. Right. Okay. Well, let's carry on. Uh, chapter three, verses seven. I was going to say one interesting thing there. Yes. That you know, we, we, we do say that you know Jesus unites people. Here is the uniting people in, in there. Yeah, against the, him. Yeah, the, yeah. the Pharisees went out and immediately uh, held counsel with the Herodians against him. You know, uh-huh. you kind of, Jesus is good at bringing yeah, people together. There's absolutely no hesitation in their minds. They just go immediately, Mark says. He uses that word again. Yeah. As speedily as Jesus heals people and cleanses people and deals with sin and Satan, they are just as quick to go and kill him yep. without a thought. Yeah. It would appear. Right, verses, where are we up to, Ian? Verses 7 to 12. Okay, let's carry on. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. I don't blame him. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them how not and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Okay, what do we see here, Ian? Well, Jesus' fame is growing. Even though there's opposition growing, we see also his fame growing. And looking at where they, people are coming from, it's everywhere, including Gentile areas. So Tyre and Sidon were Gentile, weren't they? Yes, mm. yeah. Mm. And so you've got a huge range. It doesn't necessarily mean that those people coming were uh, Gentiles. They, they could have been Jewish people. Uh, but it doesn't matter because the people coming from everywhere, you know, across the Jordan, you know, it's kind of this huge range of people. Uh, and his fame is growing. I think it's interesting that he's afraid of being crushed. You know, this is Jesus. <laughs> you know, yeah, so obviously people are pressing around him and, yeah. and, and, and literally invading his space. Any significance to the sea and the boat? Probably. <laughs> is that helpful? Yeah, okay, we'll just leave it at that. And say what we said last time, that the sea and boats are significant in Israel's history. Verses 13 to 19, the last chunk of our passage. 
And he went up on the mountain, definitely significant, and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Oh, I love the sons of thunder. Great, great name. It must have been fiery. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. That's going on to verse 20. I've gone on one verse too many. But anyway, what's the significance of Jesus going up the mountain here? Well, mountain, mountains are very significant in the Bible. So you have... Um, Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain. You have uh, Moses meeting God on the mountain. You've got Moses again with uh, in, at Sinai. You've got Mount Zion, uh, Elijah going on a mountain mm. meeting God. Mm. And so usually it's the place where God meets with his people mm. in some form or another. Yes, and instead of Moses going up the mountain and getting the Ten Commandments and the law, we have Jesus going and uh, appointing 12 apostles. Now, why 12 Twelve is significant um, because you have the twelve uh, tribes uh, and twelve sons of of uh, Israel. Although the twelve tribes aren't kind of you know you have, anyway, there's thirteen <laughs> tribes, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But so, there are twelve yeah, tribes. Yeah. yeah. And in what sense do these? In what sense do these twelve apostles constitute then a new Israel? Yeah, I think even though they're a weird bunch of you know kind of. People, what we see is, uh, as the story continues on, it's kind of a reimagined Israel. It's a new group of people, uh, although continued on out of Israel uh, to be God's people. So, who is Mark saying Jesus is here? Then, what's well, pretty clear, isn't it? It's God Himself come and meet His people mm. Mm. <laughs> up on the mountain, mm. you know, meeting with His people. Yeah. What sort of kingdom has Jesus come to establish? Well, I guess that's what we're going to see in the rest of Mark. Is is it? It's, it's not a kingdom that you would expect. Why would you call this bunch of ragtag you know, fishermen and tax collectors and all a bunch of other stuff if it's going to be a kingdom of force and power? It's not going to be that, is it? Mm. How has the church so often bought into the wrong idea of the kingdom? Well, because we think that Jesus has come to establish a kingdom of power, a kingdom of violence at times, but... Jesus' kingdom has to be the exact opposite. It is not a kingdom. It's a king, oh, oh, like that. It must be a kingdom of service, a kingdom of suffering at times, but a kingdom of laying down one's life for the for the benefit of others. Uh, you, when you preached on this uh, t- uh, passage, you said that you thought that Reformed and Presbyterian theology often makes men proud and arrogant. Why do you think that is? I say that as a Reformed Presbyterian. Well, we both are. (laughs) Well, I'm Anglican, but but, um, broadly Reformed Presbyterian, I suppose. Well, a Reformed Anglican is a a Presbyterian in my books. Well, I I think it does lead that way because the the, kind of sitting around, it it shouldn't, but it does, because if you get the theology wrong of kind of Reformed theology, it leaves you uh, in a sense of, I have understood the doctrine. I've understood it and I have got it right. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you've got your heart right. And it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you've got your relationship uh, with God right either. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's where the arrogance comes from, is that because it, there is a lot around it based on knowledge, 
uh, which, but that knowledge should lead to humility. It often leads to pride, which, which knowledge often does. Mm. All right. Uh, wonderful passage. Thank you, Ian Rido, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Thank you so much again. And next time we're going to come and look at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.